Boo. Hello and welcome to Eater No Lit. My name is Nick Argyris. And this week, I'm looking for the best spooky book. To help me are two high school English teachers, Ian and Joe. That's pretty spooky sounds. That was like knife. That was like wow. knife sounds from Psycho. Hi, Nick. My name is Joe Holshue, and you really scared me with that intro. There <laughs> Sorry. You said boo. I should have asked you to brace yourself. All right. Well, I'm fine now. Thank you. But trigger warning for our podcast <laughs> listeners. If you are easily spooked, you might want to not listen yeah, to this the is not the episode. I'm Joe Holshue. I'm a high school English teacher. And Nick, if you are looking for a spooky book for our fourth Spooktober, I brought. I thought it was a third um, one. Nope. Well, we did like a Christmas one. How that is that was possible? Ghosts. <laughs> so this show's only been happening for like a year. Here's what happened. We did the first spectacular. It was such a, a, a crushing success. We had so much fun that we were like, let's do this again in like a month and a half. And then, <laughs> oh, oops. We lost didn't do quite so well. So Immediately we're back to the one. yearly. This is our third October of doing these. I'm excited. And Beautiful. I am too. Well, Nick, the, the book I brought was very spooky in, in kind of like a thrilly way. It was American Psycho by Brett Easton Ellis. You've probably seen the movie. It, it's it, I have. out of the book. Great. Yeah. Boo, Joe. Super boo, Nick. Uh, boo to you, Lidheads, and in this very spookiest of episodes. This I'm week for well. Spooktacular 4, I brought Shirley Jackson's Thank classic you. ghost story novel, The Haunting of Hill House, which is way better than any movie, play, or TV show made from it. Some people call it the best ghost story ever written. May your earlobes turn into assholes and shit on your shoulders. Hey, the plot doesn't fucking matter at all. This is what I think it's about. If you look closely <laughs> enough, every author was at some point a racist. Audiobooks don't count, right? All art is quite useless. <laughs> who, who told you that? Fun fact, that is how Joe laughs. <laughs>, <laughs> want to hear a scary story um not really i didn't know we were supposed to come prepared with ghost stories yeah it's it's actually legitimately scary story. okay i would love to hear it then okay get get you guys in the mood so on campus where i did my phd the Ugh. english department was <laughs> housed in this big old building that used to be the campus slaughterhouse Ooh, slaughterhouse. i'm sorry can we pause for a second okay. yeah the campus yeah, slaughterhouse? Uh, Joseph, please talk in the story tone. Oh, um, the campus Ian, slaughterhouse? Is yeah. that where they killed the kids? Or what are you talking about? <laughs> Cows. Everyone said, everyone said that when they wanted to butcher beef, either for the um, agriculture department or for the, the dining hall, sometimes for both. Wow. Like they would kill the cows there. Do all schools do that? It was haunted. No, no they just used to in the 1800s. Got it. We, you're taking us at the details. are taking us out of the, the moment. I know. Everyone said this, this building was haunted. Ghosts of cows clip-clopping down the corridors after dark. Mm. Now, this English department had a linguistics program, and they had a linguistics major and a faculty who studied linguistics. And most interesting to this story, there was a recording studio where students and faculty could do audio experiments with voice sounds. Now, this English department and the audio lab, they're housed in this big old building. Everyone says it's haunted. I never set much store by it until something happened that made me a believer. This was week nine of the semester, so mid to late October. The audio experiment studio had been booked up all day. I wasn't going to get in there until 10 p.m. at night. Finally, the last people left and it was my turn. And I went in. I closed the door. 
So there I was, working in the lab late one night, when my eyes beheld the eerie sight from the monster from the slab began to rise. And suddenly, to my surprise, he did the monster mash. Fuck. Oh, my God. 60 seconds ago is when I knew that was coming. 60 seconds. Well, that's going to be a lot to cut. Should we do like a re-recorded what was the, intro What was the clue, Joe? What was the clue? I, th- I think when I heard the word lab for the first time it, when the, in that spooky voice, um, I have a cadaver story. Can I tell you a cadaver story? Yeah. It's very short. Is it going to end with the 1960s novelty hit, The Monster Mash? I, no, it, no, it's not. Because that it's would just be the worst. Story. Boo. <laughs> Boo. My, hey, Nick, this is called continuity. You should uh, learn to love it. My school, uh, we do, we have an in-service day every year in which we go to the local technical college. Teachers do their in-service at the local technical college, and we like see the offerings. And the idea is, is like, hey, these are some offerings that you can like let your students know. Like, this is what we're doing, right? And a few years ago, I went to the cadaver lab. I like it was like it was a choose your own adventure day, and I chose the cadaver wow. lab, and it was amazing. Like it's. It was everything that you hope it is like they wheeled people out of drawers. They were partially dissected. You could hold like a human heart. Like it, it was amazing. How did they how how was that on the table? They were like, well, we could check out um, science well, was just on the table. Right. It was like a metal table physically. And yeah, and, right. yeah. But this year, and this is the spookiest problem, is this year I went to sign up for the cadaver lab again because it's amazing. And the best thing that they you do want to go back and they've and they said and they said, we don't have a cadaver lab. We oh never had God, one. That's really scary. No, they said, Joe, please, you need to stop coming here to look at <laughs> we, our cadavers. We, the cadavers have asked you to leave them alone. No, they've replaced the cadaver lab with a big computer screen that's like a 3D model of a cadaver that you can like, it's kind of interactive and you can cut into it. And oh, it you, but you don't get the smell, do you? But there's no bile. There's no juices. Yeah. This is the problem. I mean, I America, challenge you. Computers, I challenge things. you to, to, to show me cadaver juices. How long do we have to wait for smell-o-vision? Honestly. Honestly, how long? Mm-hmm. It's going to happen. I feel like it would be doable. Can they... You would just need like scratch and sniff stuff inside of your TV. Welcome, Litheads, to You Don't Know Lit, a weekly, or as we call it, strongly podcast, uh, where every week we pick a theme, and Ian and Joe, two high school English teachers, bring book recommendations, and just to upset one of them, we pick a winner. And we do have some show rules to keep us on track. Rule number one, gentlemen, only unavoidable spoilers. Rule number two, omit needless words. Uh, and rule number three, only winning matters, Vince Lombardi. And of course, I'd like we to have hear about your books. Our shadow rules, <laughs> which this week <laughs> we, could, we should call them phantom rules. This week, oh. the shadow rules are phantom rules, and the phantom rule is oh, the, oh, there's only one: don't go outside after dark. Joseph, do you want to take 30 seconds to tell me what your book is all about? Um, Patrick Bateman is a serial killer and a Manhattan investment banker. He's probably nuts, or at least he's really unreliable. Um, It says psycho right in the title. It's filled with long discourses on male fashion, grooming regimens, 80 records reviews, 80s records reviews. Um, Some countries deem it so disturbing that it can only be sold shrink-wrapped, Critics rave about it, and academics revel. Uh, revel, not ravel. Ravel, 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 ravel. And postmodern qualities. Oh, I almost stuck the landing. I read American Psycho 1991. Joe, are your cards embossed? Is that embossed? So you're, you're familiar with the business card scene, of course. I forget if this comes across in the movie, but in the book, when that guy has a nicer business card than Patrick Bateman, Patrick Bateman is yeah he is like he's devoured with he 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 absolutely cannot stand it it's the worst this is a famous scene in the uh in the movie is all the businessmen compare their business cards 
It's a great scene. It's not a metaphor at all. Brady Stanellis is on record as actually saying it's not a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> he, had a, he had a famous interview where he was like, none of this is metaphorical. It's all, it's all about men who were fascinated by their cards. Mm-hmm. They're big cards. Ian, your time has started. Everyone who has lived at Hill House has gone mad or left abruptly or died there. It's a shame. So when a supernatural investigator and his three amateur assistants rent Hill House for the summer, they expect some spooky stuff to happen. But their experiences, both real and imaginary, far exceed what they thought possible. Are there creepy twins in this book? You bet there are creepy twins in this book. I I brought The Haunting of Hill House, one of the most terrifying books I've ever read. Is it about twins? Okay, is, is this um, is this the original story for the Simpsons episode when they all go sleep in a house for a night? Well, here's the thing. Because there's a lot uh, of haunted I not, house. I, stupidly, stupidly, I did not do my Simpsons research this well, week. Well, I can fill in I any I can look gaps. into this quickly. The thing is, the thing is, like, there are there is a well-attested subgenre of horror, which is the haunted house slash gothic. Like, this is a thing. So... I don't necessarily know that the Simpsons is riffing on the haunting of Hill house, but I'll find is out. This, for you quick. Is this the premise where they have to sleep in the house for one night and then they get it. They get the house. Uh, that might be the Simpsons premise. It's not really. We'll just move on. You know, we're on spooktacular four. I can't wait for spooktacular 15 in which we <laughs> just watch week. Simpsons Treehouse of horror episodes and come and talk about them. Correct. Joseph, let's talk about business. Let's get down oh. to business. Nick, you have seen American Psycho, true? I have. All right. I bet you really like it. It seems this seems up your alley, Nick. Yeah, it is. Okay. What do you I guess yeah, what do you, you know about lay, American Psycho? Lay some like, groundwork y- yeah. here. Okay. I guess without any unnecessary spoilers, you have mm-hmm. uh the whole premise or the whole like foundation for this uh psycho movie uh is it's like set in the business world. Right. And you kind of have your main character. He's narrating. You're kind of in his head. And the whole thing is from his perspective. And you kind of go down this path of starting off as just kind of like this slightly eccentric kind of person. You're in his head. He's narrating. This is the scene that I have lunch with people. And this is why I order the Cobb salad. It's the best salad or whatever. Right. And he's like very kind of eccentric and like slowly unravels into this like horror story. And it's so well done. And yeah, that's that's the premise. Okay, Nick, you've if that's what you got from American Psycho, you have that movie and your understanding of that movie captures and mirrors this book perfectly. Excellent. Good job, Thank Nick. you. Hey. Hey, hey, let's go. Once Nick in a while. Nice I'll uh, give Nick a round of a scream. <laughs> Thank you. Just insert some screams. <laughs> Okay, Nick, this book is written from Patrick Bateman's perspective. It is a stream of consciousness novel where he tells you what he's doing right now and what he's thinking about right now. And it's the stuff that you remember from the movie. He talks about men's fashion. He talks about his grooming routine, his workout routine. He talks about how his girlfriend he wishes dressed a little bit better than she does or how her, you know, hasn't worn the right pumps with that dress. Um, He details like long descriptions of like 80s records that were popular at the time. 
It is a stream of consciousness in which we get Patrick Bateman's life through the eyes of Patrick Bateman. And you're absolutely right that as this goes on, it starts unsettling and it ends psychotically. <laughs> it ends very, very scary. Yes. Right. I, I have a question. and I think this is probably the question that that all lit heads are asking in their minds right now. Can we track a direct line from this character that Christian Bale plays in the film to mm-hmm. his eventual playing of the character of Batman, which is just one E less? Sure, than right. Like, is is um is Patrick Bateman actually just a very early Bruce Wayne? Oh, uh, no, well, no, none of that happens. Yeah. Um, it. Okay. <laughs> I read this book many years ago for the first time, and I saw the movie. I don't know when, but it, somewhere kind of. In the interceding years, I saw the movie for the first time. Rereading this book right now, I could not believe how much it felt like the movie. Okay. A lot of times, a lot of times we say like, oh, the movie didn't do it justice or the movie whatever. Like, I, I totally disagree. This movie like perfectly captures not just like the stuff that happens in this book, which it does, but it captures the feeling of this book, like that low level menace that's throughout the whole thing, this slow but steady escalation of the craziness that's on the page and craziness that's on the scene. Um, it's awesome. So are you familiar with like the the William Defoe, uh, you know, behind the scenes fact? So in the movie, William Defoe is the no. like chief investigator, right? There's a murder, right? Okay. Yep. And- like the whole movie is extremely unsettling. Like you don't really know where things are going. You're kind of what is going on? Like this guy's kind of, <laughs> you know, like I said, eccentric and it's it's very just strange. So in the scene where this cop finally talks to Christian Bale, which is actually really early in the movie, mm-hmm. the director had him play the scene, William Defoe, play the scene in three different ways. So this cop is invest, investigating the situation. The first is that he knew Christian Bale was the killer. The second is that he wasn't sure if Christian Bale is a killer. And the third is he didn't think Christian Bale was a killer. And so he had these three different, completely different scenes. And then he edit them all together into like this really nice. weird scene in Gorgeous. the movie, in which case like the audience is so profoundly confused because like every time you cut back to William Defoe, he has like this totally different demeanor. He like yeah. has a compl- completely different tone. That's kind of like the perfect example, I think, of like what that movie's like. It's just you're kind of always on the edge of your seat. You have no clue yep. what's happening. You don't know what's going to happen next. The, the word that comes to mind in this description and in when you read this book is off balance mm. like you are off balance mm. the entire time you're reading this book, which can be dangerous unsettling yeah. it can be dangerous yeah. um falling is the number one indicator of yeah know. if you're off balance on like a barrel of pillows or, or right a, a vat, that's a pretty vat. safe if you're off balance and you're standing in the middle, middle of a vat of pillows mm-hmm. you're mm-hmm. fine well and if you want to read this book that was you know, that's where we would recommend reading it in a vat of pillows. I mean, yeah, I mean, probably both of these books don't don't read them like dangling over a vat of acid or mm. other vats. No vat. Yeah, just avoid vats. Ex- a vat, well, but a vat of pillows is a good option. Other oh, vats, right, the pillow no. one. Yeah. Okay, Nick, I want to talk about this idea of like off balance and what keeps you engaged as you're in here because it is. You talk about like Willem Dafoe, like this cop who's on the murder, yeah. and like after Patrick Bateman and all that. Um. That stuff does not happen in this. Oh, cool. Right. Like like Patrick Bateman is a man who is killing people in this book. 
and nobody's the wiser. In fact, like there's several scenes in this book where he tries to confess to killing people like his his conscience is getting the most of him or he like starts feeling weird about it. Right. And at several points in this book, he tries to confess and people either mishear him or think he's joking. Right. Like he's <laughs> so. But this is a really, really strange book because the lack of an outside kind of uh, antagonist like this cop is in American Psycho, the movie, it like an antagonist drives us. Oh, wait. Oh, so there's no that character doesn't exist at all is what you're saying. That that character doesn't oh, exist. Oh, it's really cool. Does Willem Dafoe exist in that yeah, universe? So actually, um, Willem Dafoe is in the book, yeah. but it's he's oh. just there as Willem Dafoe. As himself. Great. He's yes. just like, they bump into him. He's like, Which yeah. Which is I, really unsettling too. Yeah. So this is the weird thing about this book. If you tried to put this book on a plot map, it, it, it would be very, very hard to plot, right? Like there's not really a lot of rising as- action. There's not really a climax. There's not really falling action. There's an escalation for sure. Like scenes escalate as time goes on, but like there's not a lot of outside tension. The other weird thing about this book. So like if you don't read something for plot, a lot of times you read it for character, sure. right? Like you're like, okay, well, it must be a deep dive into character, but the characters in this book are famously indistinguishable from one another, right? Like it's, it's a plot uh, point in the book and in the movie where like you can't tell these guys apart. Like the characters in this book are never described by anything other than what they are wearing. They all wear more or less the same thing. What their grooming regimens are, their grooming regimens are all more or less the same thing. And it's a narrative device in this book and in the movie that the characters are constantly confused with one another or constantly mistaken with one another. So you have a book here that has no plot, no character development really outside of our boy Patrick Bateman, but continues to compel you to turn the page as you go forward. And the thing that compels you, and I think it's probably the most interesting thing about this book, is this low level of tension that slowly, slowly escalates as time goes on. Like an escalator. It's it's an escalator. It's not an elevator. Also, can I talk about Brett Easton Ellis for a second here? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's hear because I, I heard some things about his, this little boy. The writer of this book is a guy named Brett Easton Ellis. Mm. Um, and before you ask, no, he does not have two T's in his first Thank name. You. He just Thank spells you. it Thank with you, the Joe. one T. Thank you for doing that research. I've read, I read a handful of interviews with him this week. And I think Brett Easton Ellis might have a tone problem. Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> In every interview that I read with him, he comes across like an absolute asshole. Like, like, uh-huh. like the... Biggest jagweed on the planet. He is arrogant. And this is, hey, this is just what's on the page. I, I don't know the guy personally. He comes across as arrogant. He comes across as, um, oh, like pedantic. He comes across as totally unapologetic for anything he's ever done, anything he's ever written. He tells a story once. Uh, he tells many stories in these interviews, but the one that really made me laugh is... His first book he wrote while he was still in college. He he got extremely early success. Like he wrote this book when he was 21 years old. It got published. It got like some traction and it kind of launched him into a little bit of literary fame. He wrote a second book, really well received. And then he wrote American Psycho. 
Psycho. While he was writing American Psycho, they gave him an editor, an editor that he would end up working with for a very, very long time. And his editor thought the book was too violent, like too gratuitously violent. And he kept asking Brad Easton Ellis to cut things. And Brad Easton Ellis would not do it. Right. Like, like absolutely would not do it. He's probably 25 years old at this time telling his editor to go shove it. Right. Right. Would not do it. Would not do it. Would not do it. In his review or in his interviews, which he read, which he did years, 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 years after American Psycho was published, he said, yeah, I have this editor and I have a really weird relationship with him. He's one of my best friends in the world. But I don't think he actually likes my books. <laughs> and sometimes, sometimes he like when we were writing American Psycho, he kept telling me to cut stuff, cut stuff, cut stuff. And I wouldn't cut it, wouldn't cut it, wouldn't cut it. And finally, I ended up making a couple of cuts just to placate him of like really minor details. And he kept telling me, Brett, you're going to look back on this book and you're going to be embarrassed by it. You're going to see the violence in it 20 years from now and you're going to be absolutely embarrassed by this book. And Brett Easton says, you know, when I look back at American Psycho now, I'm not embarrassed by it. And when I see those tiny details that I cut, I'm still pissed that I did. It. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, long memory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, long memory. Held. Brett Easton is holding a grudge against, you know, his best friend. I just feel like what are the odds that any amount of violence is going to not age well? Like, I just feel like. Yeah, violence is. It's one of those things. It's just timeless. It's built right into us, isn't it? <laughs> is this a well-reviewed book? Yeah, it, it is a well-reviewed book. Um, there's there's some kind of interesting stories about when it came out because the publisher uh, released a, like a sample chapter, released some sample scenes to publish, which you see from time to time. In fact, um, this last Sunday's New York Times had some samp- had a sample chapter of the upcoming Cormac McCarthy novel oh, to be published sure. later this month, and. It was a particularly violent scene. It was particularly violent against women in there, which there's a lot of violence against women in this book. And this book was widely protested. It stirred up a lot of controversy. It was widely protested before it ever came out. Bookstores wouldn't carry it. At a certain point, his publisher dropped like the paperback rights for it, like wouldn't publish it, kind of a Solomon Rushdie situation, and a different publisher had to pick it up. So it was a hotly protested book when it came out, and ultimately a when it came out, kind of a mixed review, but a book that has really stood the test of time. I think partially because of the, like, I think a hu- in huge part because of the film, like being kind right. of a cult classic and and doing well like that. A lot of, uh, a lot of, there's, I mean, there's a lot of negative reviews in terms of like mm-hmm. violence against women. Um, yeah. What do you, what do you think about that, Joe? Yeah, I, I don't, rec- I mean, I mean, in the I, movie, I think the reality of it, yep. Uh, maybe that comes across stronger in the book than the movie. Yeah. Cause I, I don't recall when I, when I was reading the reviews for this, I wasn't, I was seeing this, this charge of misogyny and I was like, huh, I, I don't, I don't really remember that so much in the movie. Yeah. It's explicit in the book. Like it's explicit in the book, but also Patrick Bateman treats all women terribly in the book, whether or not he's murdering them, right? Like he has a very low opinion of, of women just in general. Um, Brett Easton Ellis had a, a, a kind of a reprehensible, kind of a, a, a reprehensible, but also pretty quotable line in a Paris Review interview that he did. And let me see if I can find it. How do you spell misogyny? M-Y-S-O-M-I-S-S-S-A-G-E. Okay, Ian, how do you spell misogyny? M-I-S-O-G-Y-N-Y. He says, 
Months before the book was published, a few pages of the manuscript were leaked to the media, and these were pages in which Patrick Bateman kills women or fantasizes about killing women. The critics who read those pages naturally assumed they were representative of the whole book, and so a lot of outraged reviews and editorials started appearing in the New York Times in a book review attacking me, an op-ed by Laurie Moore go badgers and on and on uh what has what has society come to when a book like this can be published by a responsible publisher like simon and schuster and keep in mind these weren't right-wing conservatives attacking me they were well-meaning liberals primarily feminist and then he says i wasn't a misogynist when i wrote the book oh, no. but the unearned feminist hysteria briefly turned me into Yikes. one oh. uh, that, that's a quote that he was okay with having published in the in the paris Review. okay well this this ended well uh joe <laughs> would you say he's I, I i'm gonna give you i'm gonna give you an escape hatch here but i don't, I don't mm-hmm. really think like when you say that that kind of crap i don't i don't see any justification for it is he a provocateur is he is his thing kind of like trolling before trolling yeah. existed is his is his whole deal poking the bear is is this an autobiography well <laughs> okay i've i have two things to say um one goes back to like is there violence against women in this book and the answer is yes absolutely like he's misogynist Brad, uh, not Brad at easton ellis i'm sorry patrick bateman is absolutely misogynist he treats women terribly um and does that happen in this book yes but also like he's a crazy serial killer in this book like we're not supposed to sympathize or empathize with patrick bateman like he's not likable secondly is brett easton ellis a provocateur is he a troll i think the answer is I don't know if he intentionally is, but he is one of the most contentious interviews I've ever read. Um, I I tried to read one with him in The New Yorker that was published kind of at the height of Donald Trump's, you know, like 2017 or something Uh like that, in which he staunchly (laughs) defended Donald Trump and said that liberals were basically being way too nice to him at the time. And, And like, I don't think he's doing that to stir up, you know, like, I don't think he's doing that for the lols or for the memes. Uh, like, I think he's doing that because like, that's kind of what Brad Easton Ellis believes. Uh, and I don't think he's super likable. Um, the book though, really <laughs> effective. Nice job, Brad Easton Ellis. We appreciate it. Uh, Joe, I have, I have one more question. Mm-hmm. The movie I think has a pretty clear overt message. What is the overt message of this book? When you read about this book, uh, the word satire gets thrown around a right. lot, right? Like, like this is a satirization. This is a satire of overt consumerism. It's a satirization of, um, uh, of, of like male chauvinism and what's expected of people, what's expected of males in society, etc. This book that, I mean, that's the message that holds true, but yeah. also, um, in a rare moment of, of candor from Brett <laughs> Easton Ellis uh, and, and kind of rawness. He said, you know, for years people would ask me about this book and I would say, yeah, it's a satire and you maybe just don't know what's going on in it uh, and stuff like that. And he says, but when I look back at this book, like it really is me dealing with the person that I was kind of becoming at the time. Like I had this early literary success I moved to New York City from L.A. I saw myself as kind of among the literary elite. I started publishing mean book reviews of other people's stuff in, the, in, in book review <laughs> magazine and stuff like that. And he says, and I started living an incredibly shallow, like kind of drug fueled, like very like slightly misogynistic lifestyle is what he says. And me writing this book was really me 
kind of dealing with that. And he, he talks about how every book he writes is him kind of dealing with something. And he says, me writing this book is, is it a satire of like the shallow consumerism? Absolutely. But it's also a condemnation of myself for buying into this shallow consumerism. So he's like those, he's like those comedians, those standard comedians who use their set as a, an, an opportunity to work through all their problems. Oh. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's yeah. This is the Mark Maron podcast. This is a Dave Chappelle <laughs> special. <laughs> Listen, Litheads, there is nothing like some accountability to make me do things. I'm with you. <laughs> so uh-huh. a couple of weeks ago, I said some pretty uh, some pretty strong. I made some pretty strong statements about uh, Annie or the new Nobel laureate in literature and how I would probably never read any oh, of her yeah. work and how I oh didn't know God, who she yeah. was. You almost got canceled. It was everywhere. I you know. Well, I, know I, I did receive some some very Hate sort mail. of tear stained letters directly from her. Um, she she reached out and, and I want to apologize directly to her right now by reading one of her books, which is regarded as her magnum opus. It's a short little book called The Years, um, translated in, I believe, 2019. And uh, she didn't you don't win a Nobel Prize for the the book. You win a, a prize for a whole body of work mm-hmm. Says this is one of her great works. So uh, I will read next week. Annie Erno's The Years. Ian, Ian DeJohn. Yeah. Yep. Um, can you please tell me about your spooky book? Um, yeah, I'll tell you about what happens. And then I want to return to something Joe said. Because uh, I, I wanted to butt in when Joe was talking, but I don't want to be a butt in ski, so I didn't. No, I, didn't. I don't want to be a butt. The book is, uh, the, the plot is fairly simple. Four people go to a notoriously haunted house. Uh, they stay there. Their, their, their goal is to study the haunting, the, the evil that lives there. Um, they're not skeptics. Oh man, they know it's they Academics. know it's coming. Right. Well, and this is the interesting Allow me thing. to butt in a lot. <laughs> <laughs> they're not like none of these none of these guys are skeptics. They're, they don't have to be convinced. Like they're they they go into it expecting there to be some spooky happenings. Um, and they they sort of sign up for it. They these mm-hmm. aren't your stereotypical, like, oh, it's raining and our car broke down. This is the only place to stay. Or we bought this house and we have no idea it's haunted. This is like they're seeking out a haunted house. They believe big mistake. They are stronger. <laughs> like they can, they they can, they can beat the house. So they right. go in. Um, they That's live there just because nobody's ever done it doesn't mean it can't just be done. luxuriate in that moment for a second. I mean, how many people do they know have died in this house? <laughs> well, people don't die in the house. People usually leave. Leave abruptly. People leave abruptly. The house unsettles them. There's that word again. So much Mm -hmm. that people leave. And sometimes people leave. Usually people leave because they they invent excuses. Oh, I've got to go see a man about a dog. Uh, Oh, my brother's sister's wife in um, North Columbia needs to be resuscitated. I got to go do that. Like they leave to they they, they don't maybe acknowledge to themselves. This is why they're leaving. But the house drives people away. Oof. It's also got this really, really old, it's long history. The villagers, mm. there's a nearby village and the villagers are all suspicious. Okay. Yeah. So, so these guys think they can beat it. They do. And like, if you want to talk about stupid people in horror, this is a stupid, this move, is like, right? yeah, this I is am stronger. The beginning. It's like one Oh one, but it's yeah, also, it's, it's also kind of refreshingly realistic because this is honestly, this is the ghost hunters. Um, you know, like all those, all those reality, yeah, hey, huge air quotes on, on the sci-fi channel reality ghost TV 
the belief is like, yes, this stuff is real, but human beings through rational rationality and logic, reason and logic can, can defeat it. So they go in and they're going to measure things. The, the lead researchers, like, let's take a bunch of notes. Oh, did they have they, all the Ghostbusters gear? Are they like, here's my spookometer? No, <laughs> no, they don't have, they don't have gear. They have, they have their, their senses, their eyes and okay, their ears and their five tools. Original gear. They he he insists at the beginning. He's like, we gotta take a ton of notes. They smell cadavers. Uh, well, there's a there is actually a part where they do smell cadavers. <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, they they go in and they they are staying in the house. There's a housekeeper um, who makes them food, and things are pretty good during the day. Does she come the, with the house during the night? It gets spooky. I have questions about this housekeeper. I'll talk about so the housekeeper. In a what's her name? Oh, I will talk. Or his name? Hang on. Or their name. Okay, fine. It's time for <laughs> trope of the <laughs> week. <laughs> wah, 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 wah. Um, the trope of the week is the creepy housekeeper. Uh, her name is Mrs. Uh, Dudley. Um, this is a classic. <laughs> she sounds creepy. She's married. Yeah. She, so so um, so her husband. She's married to the house. She's like a bride of Christ. <laughs> no, her husband is Mr. Dudley. Oh. And um, there's a twin trope, which we're not going to get into because that's a separate. We only you only get one lit heads. You get one trope every week. And that's that's the limit. They cost a lot of money. Oh, yeah. The the her husband is uh, an example of the crusty groundsman. No, the crusty, get out. The he's crusty the groundskeeper. groundskeeper. That's awesome. He's yeah. Groundskeeper. Yeah. Really so good. She, he's the crusty groundskeeper. She's the creepy housekeeper. And, and they make she, it work. She's. <laughs> She is, I mean, she's Against all odds. got good qualities. She's an amazing cook. That's sweet. She has some weird qualities. She has a psychic connection to the house. Oh, right. No, um, buried that. She has a kind of like. So does she say things like the house is mad or the house is no, good? No, 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 like no. That? She doesn't warn okay. them. She comes, she's oh. like, she's a little bit, she's a little bit like, what are you doing here? And they're like, she's like, well, did, we're here to, to scope it out. Did I leave the oven on? And the house is like, no, you're good. <laughs> she's like, <laughs> gotcha. I got you. <laughs> ma'am wouldn't that be nice uh, hey, uh, ian i'm sorry when was this book written 59 59 okay it's, it's you yeah. know it's back a couple of years yeah yeah so it's, it's and, an og I'll, I'll i'll talk about that in a little bit in a little so, bit creepy housekeeper mrs dudley she only ever the biggest thing about her is that she only says the same things like oh, the same God. few things so she's kind of like robotic but she's not a robot she's she's a right, human right, right right but she right. says the same thing she says um so it goes i <laughs> I I'll put uh, I'll put breakfast on the table at nine. I'll clear up at ten. And they're like, "Hey, can we have some coffee?" I'll put lunch on the table at one. I'll clear up at two. I'll put breakfast. They are then. not reading the like, room. She yeah right. <laughs> she will give them no. Um, it's not clear if like the house has possessed her. Or she's been broken by the house, or she's just a naturally creepy person. Right. But right. whatever it, whatever the answer is, I am nominating Joe to be our creepy oh. housekeeper for the rest of today's episode. Okay. Right. Breakfast at nine. Cleared at ten. What Thank are the you. responsibilities? We just listed. Oh, them. You got, uh, Joe. How is your souffle making? You have to make love a to a souffle? groundskeeper. <laughs> I've never. Uh, is, he, is he a crusty groundskeeper? Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> well, in that case, um, I've never made a souffle. I have baked. Uh, I, I haven't baked anything. What's the I've nicest thing Christmas you cooked? Cookies. What's the nicest thing? The you nicest cooked? thing that I cooked is a, maybe maybe a risotto. Oh, good, um, perfect. Yep, it will allow it. Good. Yep. Yep. Okay. So you'll just you'll just kind of like butt in and tell us it's Are time for dinner. Are they eating like risotto? Yeah. They're eating real good. Yeah, they're eating so good. Like, okay. This is not a this is not a like a gross house, a nasty house during the day. Yeah. During the day, it's kind mm -hmm. of idyllic. The first forty percent of the book is like going well. 
Is that no, no, no. pretty quickly it falls apart. So like uh, this book has some seriously good, like creepy ghost stuff, but it feels earned. So it builds, it builds gradually. And by the climax when the haunting is in full effect, there is a legitimate like culmination of all of the stuff that's stacked up and the story's resolution, which is feels simultaneously like a huge shock and in retrospect, totally foreshadowed. It feels like the only way this story could end. But this is a good example of a distinction, which I wasn't really familiar with before this week. The distinction between terror and horror. Okay. Oh, I love this. So I'm on board for this. I was not aware that there was a difference. Me. Well, neither was Ian. Right. Before this, um, before this, this recording, I I, I wasn't like, I wasn't my prep for this. I wasn't aware. So terror is anticipation and horror is reaction. So they interact oppositely with time. The longer terror lasts, the worse it gets because terror is keying you up for an event which you know will happen. It's suspense. It's knowledge that doom is encroaching, but it has not yet happened. Whereas horror, the longer horror lasts, the more kind of banal and boring it gets. So I have a quote from a guy who is a scholar of Gothic literature where you see a lot of this terror versus horror thing. Um, His name is Devendra Varma. He says the difference between terror and horror is the difference between awful apprehension. That's terror Mm. and Mm -hmm. sickening realization. That's horror between the smell of death and stumbling against a corpse. This is great. You know, this is great because if you know, terror and horror, we might not have those like crystal clear in our mind, but if you changed it to terrified and horrified, you would get it correct every single time. Like, how do you feel about your upcoming speech? I'm terrified, right? right? Like you would never say I'm horrified. How did, you, right, how did your right. speech hey, go? Hey, remember you that speech when, you, how did your speech go when you threw up in the room? Oh my God. It was, it was horrifying. Yeah. It was horrifying. Yeah. Yes. So this, this book has this really good build. And the reason I connect this to Joe's because Joe's book sounds like it also like really keys you. You probably do get maybe more of the horror in Joe's book when you see like the, the murders and stuff. But right, like this knives. book, this book is masterful in what is unsaid. There's a gripping moment when they're the, the two main characters are walking through a beautiful wooded area and they go by a, like over an idyllic hill. This is daytime. And but they it's not see, scary. Uh, they, well, it's supposed to be, but it's, it's got you confused. It's got you, uh, it's got you unsettled. They mm-hmm. see people having a picnic and they walk towards the picnic and they walk past it. And then the one who is in behind, she turns to look over her shoulder and she screams, don't look back, just run. And Jackson never tells you what not to look back at, but the terror at, at with which they run because they know there is something, but they, they and we don't know what it is. Oh, it gets you. It's so, so yeah. good. It's like. It's like a a, 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 a a string on a guitar that is tuned oh. to the point of breaking. Yeah. And you know if you twist that key any further, it's going to snap. But something makes you want to keep, keep twisting, keep adjusting. Oh, if it's not clear, I love this book. Who wrote it? Shirley Jackson. So Shirley Jackson is possibly best known for her short story, The Lottery, which is sort of it starts with this very um, bucolic American town where 
people have funny customs and it gradually turns into we murder one person by lot every year. Oh, um, that's fun. To, yeah. to protect to, like to, to help the old. No, well, it's, it's on like lottery day. It's a classic in terms of uh, English teachers trying to ruin uh, high school kids. Um, uh, unsettling stories. Right. Short stories. I taught this it this long. year. Like I taught it like a month ago. Yeah, this is what we do. The lottery is amazing. Jackson Jackson's cool because she was not, she wrote a lot of unsettling, scary stuff. She was not a horror author the way we might, we might say Stephen King is a horror author. Um, and we might not, not even say that, but she wrote widely. And this book, this book, she decided, hey, I'm a pretty good writer. I bet I could absolutely crush a ghost story. So she did, did a ton of prep. She drew out floor plans. She like imagined, like built up this. She did a ton of research and then she wrote this ghost story. And the reaction was just, just enormous. People, people loved it. Horror icons point to it as one of the best ghost stories they've ever read. Um, The press reviews, like it has this huge uh, uh, weight in the field. And that's because it's just so everything seems deliberate. Everything seems, seems personal, um, uh, purposeful, not personal and personal. And this time it's personal. Mm-hmm. So back to the um, spooky housekeeper. Is she yeah. in on mm-hmm. it? Yeah. I bet that's part of the climax. I bet oh, you're not going right. to tell us. Or is she the house? Is <sighs> she is, the house? This is one or of the is she things. the one that's doing it? This, this is one of the is, things. Is there a big this, reveal in this book? Is that the idea, right? This is building up? No. The, the so okay i i used to i i i, I i've known a couple of a couple of my students have been really into horror fiction and they mm-hmm. tell me that what i'm about to say is wrong it's inaccurate yeah. but i really like this idea <laughs> the, the construction wrong, the construction that they're the horror, <laughs> horror is fantasy without lore good horror good horror doesn't really give you all of the backstory behind the specific reasons why the ritual sacrifice to the old gods must yeah. be done at 3 p.m. on a Thursday mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. the staff meeting. Right. Good, right. good horror Rizzotto. just says, we got to do that. We got to do that ritual sacrifice, baby. Let's go. Mm-hmm. Good mm-hmm. horror doesn't really give you all the answers. It's a so, mystery, right? You're left to fill in the pieces, right? right? Well, right. If you, if you knew it, it really takes the edge right. off. It's like, well, to be fair, they do have to do the sacrifice at 3 p.m. because like there was a covenant <laughs> right, right, right. and like it all makes because sense, guys. Bill's a diabetic. <laughs> right. Once you've got that, it becomes, it becomes not, it's not terror so much anymore. Um, this, so the, the, the big reveal is like, yes, this, this house is haunted. It's not all psychological, though it is partially psychological. We'll get into that. This is an evil house like that. She does give us that the house is clearly a, a, an evil. It's messed up. She gives maybe reasons. Maybe the owner was evil. Maybe the house is built like, you know, some of those mystery spots but, type places where things are built to seem off kilter. Right. She suggests like gravity oh, is weird. Yeah, here. maybe it's designed oh, so like the, the doors equator. swing shut naturally. Maybe um, it's the ghost of the woman who hanged herself in the truth brewery. So you're constantly she, speculating, right? Mm-hmm. That's the book, right? Speculate, speculate. Mm-hmm. Hocus pocus. Um, as Ian thinks of that, I do have a dinner update for you guys. Yeah. Uh, do you want salads? Because I can make a salad. <laughs> you don't need it's the oven risotto. for a salad. R- <laughs> Risotto's got tomatoes in it. Uh, do you want Does salad? the house give tips 
like um, like, like on seasonings, like perhaps a little salad. rosemary. <laughs> <laughs> the house is named Alexa, weirdly. Um, she's way ahead of her time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the the first name it's Alexa Hillhouse. Hillhouse is just the last beautiful, um, beautiful name. So so Nick, you ask if this is all. Thank you, Joe. I would love a salad, um, but no no raisins, please, on that salad. Um, of course, Ron- no raisins on a salad. <laughs> it's a scary house, not a monster <laughs> house. <laughs> no raisin. <laughs> no, it's an evil house. An evil house absolutely would put raisins and Thousand Island dressing on the salad. Unless <laughs> <laughs> that's truly mortifying. That is really horrifying sound. Talk about cadavers. Okay, so so the house, she doesn't tell you, she doesn't explain, like, this is why the house is this way. The fact is, the house is spooky. There are there are doors that swing shut on their own. There's crashing on the stairs at night. Blood mysteriously shows up on the walls. There's a creepy laugh, a gurgling laugh. There's an area. I think this is the Simpsons episode, guys. <laughs> I, th- I, I think I it think might be the Simpsons. Simpsons. So I looked, Do the walls. I looked at the Simpsons. I looked at the Simpsons uh, wiki and it said that it was actually based that one of those episodes was based on the Amityville horror, oh, which is different. That, be, that actually sounds different haunted too. house. The difference between this house and other haunted houses. This is the psychological piece of this. Mm-hmm. The house haunts you in Soviet Russia. <laughs> the house, <laughs> this house the in Russia. House, it's not. Right. It doesn't. Spooks the, don't haunt the house. Nope. There's not spooks. No, you did that wrong. The house <laughs> haunts our characters. So our point of view character, um, Eleanor, she's the, she's the, the main character who we follow throughout the, the story. She is strongly affected by this house. So she imagines things early on. There's some foreshadowing that the house like causes relationships between people to break down and her relationships with the other people there. They start to deteriorate. She starts suspecting them. She starts behaving strangely. She becomes haunted by the house. Oh, yeah. And so the house zest. What's that? Possessed by the house? Kind of. She so the the language is she's becoming part of the house. The house is overwhelming her kind of sensitive spirit. She is she is. There's a moment where she kind of like sort of sort of is confronted in a conflict with the house. I'm not going to say like which way we go. Yeah, we just can't tell you all the answers, Joe. No, yeah. I'm not well, it's not you good. The you know, if a house but, is taking over your body slowly, you have to go see somebody about that. But the, the, beauty, the beauty of the story is we get kind Carpenter. of these two parallel arcs. Carpenter, we get the yeah. the exploration arc of what new spooky things can this house trot out for us. And we also get the classic arc of person devolving losing grip with uh, of of reality of their sanity with their reality of thinking yeah. that they can outbeat the house <laughs> right so there's there's a combination where like it's it's a classic i mean we, we both have yeah. kind of unreliable narrators here right eventually it's not clear whether the stuff that we're seeing is actually happening or if it's just eleanor's imagination it's happening in her mind Great. I have nothing else to say about this book um, besides besides the fact that it's really, really this is going to this is going to be maybe it is. It's going to sound elitist. This reads obviously this reads like this read, reads like good literature. I oh, think sure. sometimes sometimes the focus in horror fiction is messing you up. It's honestly yeah. it's that horror. She really it's so restrained. It's so careful. She is keying you up and she is a brilliant writer. All of her words are well chosen. 
She she chooses when she's going to switch points of view. There's a climactic moment where all of a sudden we move from one point of view to another and she signals it beautifully. But you go back and look and you can't quite see the seam where we switch from one to the other. It's just I am in awe of the writing of this book. Um, I I it's a, it's great. It's a classic. And I don't want sometimes you read a book and you're like, oh, I want this to be a movie. I don't want this to be a movie. Yeah. I know it's been adapted a couple of times. It's it's perfect as it is. Gentlemen, welcome to Tiffany's, a safe place where you can tell me anything about your books. Uh, and it won't be held against you in our final uh, judgment Court call. Joseph, is there anything you'd uh, like Joe, to I tell us? Remind you, yep. I just want to remind you that you've already said the things about Brett Easton Ellis mm. in the part where they yep. do count against right. you. You should so. have <laughs> used that for this time. Oh, by the way, my author's canceled. <laughs> he's not canceled i think maybe he should be um no if i safe space tiffany's here this book is kind of famous for like these long diatribe isn't the right word but like these long discourses right 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 right? these long discourses on business cars these long discourses on which you lewis in the news whatever it is it is an extremely effective narrative device that happens way too often uh, oh no this book yeah and i think it reminds me at some points um if you've ever read Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea uh, yeah. there's entire pages or, or I, moby dick is probably like this yeah, too right like, entire pages about the whale stuff entire pages about the undersea stuff there's entire pages about like armani suits in here that you just find yourself skimming over after a little Ooh, while the first right. time it's cool yeah the second time it's Okay, and the third time you're like, all right, your interests completely align with this serial killer, right? (laughs) Uh, Ian, (laughs) um, this is gonna sound like a a backhanded compliment, but seriously, it's not. I'm very very tired, (laughs) yeah, Uh, I don't have a lot of brain power reading this. Reading this, it it takes a lot of attention. Father of a young Um, child, yeah, yeah, like Mm -hmm. I've got a lot going on, and, and this was this was tough to get into. Um, I didn't quite bounce off of it. Once I got like about halfway through, I couldn't put it down. But the first like that slow build, right? Joe was saying that the the finger on the on the basket at first, you can barely hear the creepy and that slow build. You got to trust worth it, but it's hard to get into for at least it was. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Uh, Joe, you lose. Um, Ian got it. Sounds delicious. It is. What is it's so good. Spooktacular, Ian. Joe, uh, I actually do really want to. Okay, there you go. Joe, I, I, yeah. the book sounds great. I do want to read yeah, that yeah, eventually. It, I have seen the movie, mm-hmm. which uh, I love. At least the last time I saw it, I remember loving it. I don't know how it holds up necessarily, yeah. but the yeah. book's supposed to be great. Awesome. I'd also recommend just reading an interview with Brett Easton Ellis because <laughs> it's, it's uh, pretty like interesting. All right. Well, congratulations, Ian. Congratulations, Shirley Jackson. Boy, Shirley Jackson, things just keep coming up roses for her. But lit heads, um, we love you very much. If you love us back, the best thing you can do is tell a bookish friend about the show. Um, we love hearing from you. You can head on over to you don't know lit podcast.com. We didn't do a reader suggestion this week because it was a spooktacular tradition. Um, obviously, we weren't going to. Uh, but we we love reading your recommendations. So, is there a call to arms here? Maybe um, is there any? Maybe some holiday books, some seasonal books. Yeah, litheads. Litheads suggest yep. some good crimsis books or hol- just Hollywood books in general. <laughs> yep, Hollywood books. Clear enough for me. Yep, love it. So you don't. You can do that, of course, at you don't know lit podcast dot com and. 
I think that's everything I have to say. Uh, follow it. us on social. <laughs> Nick does a nice job over there. Uh, see you later. All right. I'm going to read you guys. Oof. I'm going to read you guys a chapter that really, really got me last night. Um, this is about in the middle. Things are really kind of taking off. Uh, one character, Theodora, had some stuff happen in her room. She's moved out of her room. Uh, now she's now she's um, staying in the room of Eleanor, who's our main character. And this is a little bit on the long side, but it pays off. So, so here we go. Sitting up in the two beds beside each other, Eleanor and Theodora reached out between and held hands tight. The room was brutally cold and thickly dark. From the room next door, the room which until that morning had been Theodora's, came the steady low sound of a voice babbling too low for words to be understood, too steady for disbelief. Holding hands so hard that each of them could feel the other's bones, Eleanor and Theodora listened, and the low, steady sound went on and on, the voice lifting sometimes for an emphasis on a mumbled word, falling sometimes to a breath, going on and on. Then, without warning, there was a little laugh, a small, gurgling laugh that broke through the babbling and rose as it laughed on, up, and up the scale, and then broke off suddenly in a little painful gasp, and the voice went on. Theodora's grasp loosened and tightened, and Eleanor, lulled for a minute by the sound, started, and looked across to where Theodora ought to be in the darkness, and then thought screamingly, Why is it dark? Why is it dark? She rolled and clutched Theodora's hand with both of hers, and tried to speak and could not, and held on, blindly and frozen, trying to stand her mind on its feet, trying to reason again. We left the light on, she told herself, so why is it dark? Theodora, she tried to whisper, and her mouth could not move. Theodora, she tried to ask, why is it dark? And the voice went on, babbling low and steady, a little liquid gloating sound. She thought she might be able to distinguish words if she lay perfectly still, if she lay perfectly still and listened and listened and heard the voice going on and on, never ceasing. And she hung desperately to Theodora's hand and felt an answering weight on her own hand. Then the little gurgling laugh came again, the rising mad sound of it drowned out the voice, and then suddenly, absolute silence. Eleanor took a breath, wondering if she could speak now, and then she heard a little soft cry which broke her heart, a little infinitely sad cry, a little sweet moan of wild sadness. It is a child, she thought with disbelief. A child is crying somewhere, and then upon that thought came the wild, shrieking voice she had never heard before, and yet knew she had heard always in her nightmares. Go away, it screamed. Go away, go away, don't hurt me. And after, sobbing, please don't hurt me, please let me go home. And then the little sad crying again. I can't stand it, Eleanor thought concretely. This is monstrous. This is cruel. They have been hurting a child, and I won't let anyone hurt a child. And the babbling went on, low and steady, on and on and on, the voice rising a little and falling a little, going on and on. Now, Eleanor thought, perceiving that she was lying sideways on the bed in the black darkness, holding with both hands to Theodora's hand, holding so tight she could feel the fine bones of Theodora's fingers. Now I will not endure this, they think, to scare me. Well, they have. I am scared. But more than that, I am a person. I am human. I am a walking, reasoning, humorous human being. And I will take a lot from this lunatic, filthy house, but I will not go along with hurting a child. No, I will not. I will, by God, get my mouth to open right now, and I will yell. I will. I will yell. Stop it! She shouted. 
and the lights were on the way they had left them, and Theodora was sitting up in bed, startled and disheveled. What? Theodora was saying. What, Nell? What? Good God, Eleanor said, flinging herself out of bed and across the room to stand shuddering in a corner. Good God. Whose hand was I holding? <laughs>